We will be in Nehemiah 2 this morning. So we're going through Nehemiah as well, talking about trading kingdoms. We just started last week, so you're here at a perfect chance to understand it and to begin to get on the same page with all of us. You won't be, you haven't missed much. There is something that all of you know as we talk about Nehemiah that you don't have to worry about. You probably went to a school that told you about somebody named Paul Revere. There's a famous poem about Paul Revere called The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. He would have been our neighbor, but it was about 200 plus years ago, so it's been a little while. But as a reminder, Paul Revere did a midnight ride on a horse. It was pretty important for those of us who lived in Massachusetts back then. Paul Revere, and now too, that's right. Paul Revere wasn't the original midnight rider, though. Nehemiah was the original midnight rider. So chapter 2, I invite you to read along with me, hear about his midnight ride. It came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before the king, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted, to the, granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. The king has reigned for 20 years. The wine comes out, Nehemiah serves the wine. The king's will defines Nehemiah's life. He does what the king wants because that's how the king lives. But sadness comes to Nehemiah's face as he does his everyday job. Why is sadness coming to Nehemiah's face? He lives in a palace. He's got an easy job. We talked about it last week. I mean, pretty straightforward. Can you hold a goblet in your hand? Can you walk back and forth? Can you sip the goblet to make sure it's not poisonous? Why would Nehemiah be so sad in such a cushy job? It's because he's serving wine instead of rebuilding walls. He's not in Jerusalem where he cares about being. He's been praying and weeping and fasting for four months. What we talked about last week was four months before what happens today. So that, all that time praying, weeping, fasting, feeling what he's feeling, thinking about the destruction of Jerusalem now shows up on his face as he hands the wine to the king. The king says, this is nothing but sadness of heart. In other words, it's way down deep inside Nehemiah and he sees it. This is like any good story, now we've got some tension. 
now we've got like this issue that's got to be worked out between two people. Why are you sad in my presence? The king owns the wine. The king has given him a cushy job, but Nehemiah's traded kingdoms. Nehemiah's decided his allegiance belongs to someone else. And he can't hide his heart anymore, and he can't pretend that the palace is a pleasure anymore. You've probably heard that saying, the heart has its reasons, which reason does not know, or something pretty close to that. I think in this case, Nehemiah's feelings are perceptive, but they're also prophetic. They're describing and sort of relating what he's going through, but they're also directing him. They, they detect what's going on inside of him, sadness, but they also direct him into what's next. Did you know that Nisan, the month that starts this chapter, is the first month of the Jewish year? Maybe some hmm out there. Some of you are like, what is this, trivia night? Like, I mean, what, 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 just useless trivia that, oh, that's good to know. No, here's the thing about Nisan. I think God put that detail in there and God brought this sadness to Nehemiah's face right then because listen to what happens in Nisan. Long before Nehemiah, Nisan is the month when the Jews had the exodus out of Egypt. It's also the month in which God said, we're going to do Passover in Nisan. So every year when you remember the exodus, every year when you remember my deliverance, you're going to do it during Nisan. It's also the month when Christ was crucified, buried, and rose again, which is way after Nehemiah, hundreds of years in the future. This is a month of miracles for God's people. This is a month when the Lord says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to lead you into a new chapter. I'm going to fix some things that are wrong in your world on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to make things different. Is it any wonder that Nehemiah gets sad in the month of Nisan? I want to say, too, that I don't know who's under you or over you or beside you or who kind of creates pressure for you to feel a certain way or act a certain way or do certain things with your life. But Nehemiah shows us that he has the freedom to have the emotions that God's putting in his heart and to express and live out that life that, that's being worked out as he says yes to God. As he trades kingdoms, doesn't matter what the king wants, Nehemiah's emotions, Nehemiah's general orientation of life is still his. He can feel sad if he wants. And look at this, one more emotion surges in Nehemiah. It's fear. He's been praying and seeking and fasting and getting counsel from friends and spending time with good Jewish people that are devoted to Jerusalem and all the rest. And then scripture says he's terrified. He gets terrified. Why wouldn't he get spared from all that? I mean, he's been fasting and praying and seeking counsel and spending time with good people for months, but he gets terrified. Well, it just means this for us today. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is obedience despite the fear. It's devotion to push through the fear. Feeling the fear, no shame. Nehemiah's not ashamed. Nehemiah doesn't feel guilty, but he pushes through. He keeps trusting God. And he gets honest with the king. Why should my face not be sad? The reality is the city of my fathers is devastated. It's destroyed. Why should I not be sad? Something for us is that being some people who've traded kingdoms, who are in Christ's kingdom and seeking what the Lord wants for us, doesn't mean we turn into robots. Or Spock from Star Trek, if that's your favorite sort of thing, where it's like, you know, all analytical, no emotions, just the facts. Like, it doesn't require that of us. It doesn't sort of shut us down as human beings and take away all feelings. Nehemiah is a real human being. The truth is, he says, I'm scared, send me. He says, I'm scared, send me. 
Nehemiah's work is rebuilding, but his identity is as a servant who gets sent. Now, why is this important? Does that just fall into the biblical trivia category? Well, no, it's this. God is always, throughout the Bible and even unto today, sending servants into his work. That's what he does. He wants the earth to be transformed. He wants life to be transformed. He sent his son. He sends Nehemiah. You could even say that he redirected Moses. Abraham got sent. So many people got sent because God's working on earth to change things. He's sending people over and over and over again. In John 17, Christ prays to the Father, and the scriptures say that Christ was sent into the world. Matthew 10, Mark 6, Christ sends his own servants out and says, go do my work. You can read for yourself in full, but in the book of Acts and other places, some of the earliest followers of Jesus are called apostles, which is not a word we use every day, but it's a word that means sent ones. So sending, 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 sending. Nehemiah's work is rebuilding, but God's method is sending. And I'm going on about this because I think there'll be moments in your life, or already moments, where you feel stirred. You feel a desire to do something. And I think it starts with disturbance for Nehemiah. He's upset about the condition of Jerusalem, and that's part of what's pointing him into his purpose. From other people's perspective, you'll be a sent person. God is sending you to do something. You are sent to rebuild. You are sent to serve. You're sent to do, a God's, to do God's work. This is his way. He brings something to you so that he can send you into the work. He gives you ideas about that. I said last week that if you deploy into the world's misery, you're dependent on God's mercy, but I'll go even farther. That deployment that you might do is really God sending you in. It's God's direction for your life. He uses human methods You'll see Nehemiah and the king had a human conversation. Nehemiah is sad. The king says, why are you sad? Nehemiah says, the city's in ruins. King says, what do you need? Pretty amazing answer. So there's these natural methods. We're going to get into it a little more, but the king gives him letters. He sends him. He gives him an army to go with him to keep him safe from all the threats and the challenges. I just want you to see how normal it is to serve God. Like it gets worked out in human ways. Letters sent, all this stuff, it happens in human ways. Go to a certain place, timbers, beams, right? I mean, he's rebuilding a wall. It's not some sort of vague, mystical idea. It's like build a wall. Well, you need like stuff to do that with. So give me the stuff. And the king says, yes. God's mercy is always involved, but he doesn't have to necessarily do miracles to make that mercy work out on the earth. He does do them, but he also does a lot of ordinary things for us. Now, how many of you have wanted something, like really wanted it, and a long time goes by, and then you get it, or you find out you're going to get it, like you know it's yours? Isn't it common for many of us, maybe not all of us, but isn't it common for many of us that at that moment, fear surges? What if this isn't it? Or what if this goes wrong? Or what if it doesn't turn out the way I thought it would? We, we've wanted this thing forever. It comes right up to the moment, and then fear kind of comes out of nowhere and is like, ah, I'm a little nervous right now. Are we sure this is the right thing to do? Are we sure? You can all raise your hands and say, of course, I see it. Nobody wants to raise their hand, but I see it. We get nervous when we're about to get what we want. My question to you is, how will you act when you're feeling fear? Because Nehemiah's not saying he got rid of his fears. How will we act when we're feeling fear? I encourage you, take initiative and act. Gather with a few Christians. Act. You could just get together and read all the times that Jesus talked about fear 
You could just get together and ponder, what is everything Jesus ever said about fear? And have a gathering, have a discussion about that. Because Nehemiah met with other Jews. He wasn't doing this alone. He couldn't define reality alone. He couldn't decide his purpose alone. Like this rebuilding the wall idea didn't come out of nowhere. He was with other people having conversation. You can't deploy into human misery without feeling fear, even if you're depending on God's mercy. These relationships help him act boldly. But here's what's interesting about Nehemiah. He stays really humble. He says to the king, if it pleases you, if I've found favor, let the king live forever. In other words, my sadness is not some sort of condemnation or judgment or attack or threat or disruption of your life, king. I want great things for you, but I got my own stuff going on, and this is what I'm working through. And the king responds well and says, what would you request? That's an awesome thing. And I just want to take a second and just point out Matthew 6 to you. Christ, talking to a group of people who are at the very beginning of starting to figure out who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him and where is he taking this mission that he seems to be on. He seems great, but we're still figuring him out and getting to know him. And Jesus looks at them and he says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things food, shelter, clothing, will be added to you as well. Nehemiah sees that happen when a king looks him in the face and says, what would you request? What do you want? What do you need? Decades later, after Christ, I mean decades later, a man named Paul started a church in Philippi. He wrote him a letter to continue encouraging him in the faith, and he wrote this. He said, God will meet all your needs. My God will meet all your needs, is what he told that church in Philippi. And the reason he does it is because God takes care of his children who commit to his mission. He's a good father to them. He loves them. He cares for them. He provides for them. Some of you who are pretty clever would say, okay, preacher man, well, then why does Nehemiah pray? I mean, if he's got all this knowledge and he's been praying for four months and he's hanging out with other devout Jews, why does he get asked, what would you request? And then say, so I prayed to the God of heaven in verse four. Why would he do that? I mean, he knows all this stuff. God's great. Like, just do it, right? Just do it. Why do I even pray? Well, I know the Christian answer is, well, pray at all times. But I am going to make you raise your hand now. How many of you have had an answered prayer? You don't have to tell me what it is. Just how many of you had an answered prayer? Yeah. For those of you who were hoping church would end early, I'm going to go ahead and finish because I did prepare a word from the Lord. But that right there was a sermon. Like, I, I just hope, especially for those of you in the back, you got to see more. But there were so many hands raised right now. That's a sermon in and of itself. God answers prayer. But let's be honest, what happens when most of us are afraid? Well, the human nature, when you get afraid, is either to turn into something resembling a bull that runs around and just like smashes into stuff and kind of goes berserk and is just like real reactive and intense and just crazy, or to keep using animal language would turn into kind of a deer and just be like frozen in the headlights on Route 6, which is not like an ideal you know, response from a survival standpoint. But that's kind of like what happens is like bull or deer. How does Nehemiah respond differently? Well, chapter 2, disclaimer, chapter 2 does not answer this huge question perfectly, but it does say some things that Nehemiah did. He's been praying a lot. He's been with like-minded people. They trust God, and moments like that with those people have strengthened his heart for moments like this when the king says, what would you request? 
prayer and fellowship forged Nehemiah's faith. He has confidence because he's been spending so much time thinking about who is God, what does God want, what can we do as a group of people. There's a human level. I'm sure they had to have some conversations about like how many miles of the wall are destroyed and how much rubble do we have. And like he got into the practical stuff too. But Nehemiah has confidence God will give us success even for a cupbearer turned into a contractor. Now let's practice prayer. This is your interactive moment of the sermon. Let's practice prayer right now. Imagine yourself in a sudden challenge. Whatever your challenge is, just imagine, I just got surprised by something. It's, it's kind of what I've always wanted, but it's also like, whoa, kind of scary. You just have to say, Lord, show me favor. Just in that moment. I'm not asking you to do it out loud, but just, practice, just imagine. We're just practicing. Lord, show me favor. Or you could say, Help me, Lord. <laughs> if you need it even shorter, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. If you want to, some people like specifics, you can say, God, I need words right now. God, I need action right now. God, I need clarity right now. God, I need wisdom right now. Nehemiah's situation is this king thinks that there might be poison in the wine or thinks that I might not be so devoted anymore or this is weird or it's just the king and the queen and they want to just have like a good time, not this sad guy hanging around. Like, this is not what we had in mind. We want good wine, good time, been a long day for the king and queen. We didn't want to deal with Mr. Sad over here. I don't know what Nehemiah said, but short prayer. God, help me. Nehemiah says, send me. Send me to a specific place for a specific purpose with specific supplies. He's scared, but he says, send me. He's also prepared. He's thought through this on a practical level. He got ready for his moment. He didn't even know when his moment was, but he's ready to say, send me. Let's look at verses 11 through 18. Nehemiah says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's gate and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in. Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. For all the ordinariness, for all the talk about timbers and army riding with us and getting through Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and getting here and there and all the stuff to return back to Judah, don't miss this. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's straight out of the scriptures looking forward to the idea that the gospel will be proclaimed to us through Christ. But the psalmist doesn't get that specific and I'm not gonna go all the way there. I'm just saying God's message is, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Nehemiah 2.18, he says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. 
Then the people said, let us arise and build. This is good news for people who've been living in rubble. This is good news for people living in a devastated city with burned down gates and shattered walls. The city had been like in that condition for 150 years. Imagine how destroyed a city would be after that much time. The truth is, Nehemiah said, it's bad, let's build. Because he's a kingdom trader, he's traded his kingdoms, and he's become a truth teller. So he's telling the king the truth, and he's telling the people the truth. It's bad. <laughs> like, it's bad. Let's build. That's the voice of hope. That's the voice of faith. It's the voice of reality, which doesn't have to be separated from hope and faith. He tells the truth to these people. And it applies to you and I this morning. When you and I deploy into human misery, do you know what's happening? We're bringing good news. People start to feel like God exists. God is helping. God is listening. God's showing up. God's active. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It was the feet of Nehemiah. It's the feet of Christ, a friend to sinners, a friend to anyone who seeks. And then Christ turns around and he sends his people. He sends you. He sends me. So that more people can say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I needed that in my life. Your feet can be beautiful. Never thought you'd hear that this morning, did you? <laughs> Nehemiah's got to take his own tour of the city, the midnight ride of Nehemiah. He rides around. It's his midnight ride. And along the way, God is putting something into his heart. God is stirring Nehemiah. It was one thing to hear about it. It was one thing to think about it. It was one thing to be over in the palace serving wine and say, the city of my fathers. But now he's riding an animal around under cover of darkness, not telling anybody what he's doing because he doesn't know who he can trust. And he's figuring out, wow, this city's in bad shape. This is bad. But instead of getting discouraged, he's stirred up. He's motivated to do something. What has God put into your heart? What is God stirring in you? Some kind of desire to do things. I wanted to put this together just a little bit to make it easier for us. Because I know a vague question can feel motivating. Like, what's God putting in my heart? But at some point, it's nice to like, have some tools to sort of figure that out. This is a tool that's helped me, the, the second part there. I just gave a short summary. Anytime somebody puts up a thing and says, God's will, colon, like, it's a massive undertaking. So this is my brief attempt. The Lord wants a growing family who follows Christ. There's a lot that we could do about God's will, but in the end of the day, it'd be a growing family who follows Christ. That's my best attempt. So then, okay, what's my mission? What's your mission? Well, this is the tool that's helped me. It's abbreviated SHAPE, S-H-A-P-E. I did not come up with this. S stands for spiritual gifts. What has the Holy Spirit put in you? Not you yourself, not something you were born with. What's a spiritual gift the Holy Spirit has put in you? I'm happy to talk with you more about that. I'm just going to hit these quickly. Secondly, heart. This refers to deep desires. Just something way down inside of you that makes you say, I really care about that, whatever that is. A, abilities. This is natural talents. If you're great at math or you can translate languages with a blindfold on or whatever. Natural abilities. You're a natural born leader. You're a great athlete. Whatever it is, these are natural abilities. P is personality. How's that get expressed? If you're an extrovert, using your gifts and fulfilling your call looks one way. If you're an introvert, it looks a different way. If you're a real thinker and you're just kind of slow, that you know, personality shapes how we do these things. Lastly, experience. All of us have learned things along the way. You learn stuff in school, you learn stuff at your job, you learn stuff by volunteering. 
people taught you stuff. You had a mentor, you had a coach, you had an old boss that you know maybe wasn't so great, but you picked up some things along the way. So that's experience. I put all that out there just to try to help you start thinking through some of that. I'm sure it's not the first time you've thought, what's God put in my heart? But maybe you can add some pieces and, and get closer to the mark with that. That helped me to think through that. 19 and 20, verse 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or a memorial in Jerusalem. Some of you have, as we've discussed before, a PhD in ancient Near East cultures and things like that. Just for the rest of us, I had to look up. The Horonites, the Ammonites, the Arabs mean that Israel's surrounded on all sides. These are people groups to the north, to the east, and the south. The west was a gigantic sea and a huge body of water. So in a sense, these three people who are upset represent tribal groups that surround Israel at this point. And they have the courage, you might say, to say, uh, what's this thing you're doing? You rebelling against the king? Now, Nehemiah rode into town with an army sent by the king. He's got the letters, the whole bit, but they don't mind to raise the question. Even more so, these are people who it seems that some of them at least had intermarried with and formed relationships and family connections and political connections inside Jerusalem. So they kind of had their ear to the ground for things Nehemiah might do, which is probably part of the reason he took his little midnight ride by himself <laughs> through a devastated city. These were traders who could sell Nehemiah out. And it's a pretty frightening reality, isn't it? It feels pretty frightening. We, we like all the motivational stuff that's like, yeah, yeah, God will give us success. But then there comes these people who look you in the face and threaten and sort of insinuate, maybe we're coming after you. Maybe we're going to get you. It's a pretty frightening reality. But Nehemiah, he's a truth teller. He's a truth teller. And he says, God will give us success. He's traded kingdoms, and he's totally a truth teller wherever he finds himself. Nehemiah used different words with different kind of people. He talked to the king one way. He talked to his fellow Jews another way. He talked to these enemies a third way. But he was a truth teller. I encourage you this morning to think about how you might interact with people, whoever they are, and be a truth teller. Have the same character regardless of the situation. You can shift the words around. You can think about your audience. But we can be truth tellers, and we ought to be truth tellers and can you tell it in a way that speaks to the people around you, that they, you, you could have the wisdom and the, the approach to talk to them in the right way? Nehemiah says to the king, I'm scared, I'm scared, but send me. And he says to the Jews, it's bad, let's build. And he says to his enemies, God will give us success. That's his third way. I want to close with a few more lines. I decided that I'd be a little creative, so I took the midnight ride of Paul Revere and I changed it just a bit. The midnight ride of Nehemiah. It's the first ever public performance, probably the last. Listen, brothers and sisters, for you have heard of Nehemiah's midnight ride. Despite his fear, in the month of Nisan, he rode upon rubble. But not a soul is now alive who's forgotten this truth-teller and all his trouble. 
Nehemiah spoke to any and all with true light. Toward our beloved city on any night, come our enemies, big or small. They'll come upon an unexpected sight. God gave us success. We've rebuilt our wall. Let's pray. This is who we believe you are, God. A God who sends scared people. A God who proves that following you is worth it all. It seems unbelievable to think that somebody would leave a secure job in a palace doing something really easy to go face enemies in a devastated city and the whole bit. But you proved yourself faithful, and we give you glory and honor and power for what you did in Jerusalem, for what you can do today in Hyannis and Centerville and Barnstable and Dennis and Yarmouth and all the other towns around us. We know that you are a God who does great things, and we trust you. We thank you so much for all that you've done in this church over the years and the confidence we have that you're going to do even more. We praise you and we give you glory and honor and power. It was you who rebuilt the walls. It was you who gave those people success. And it's you who will get the glory and have the success in our time and place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.